0: Right. Well, our text comes from Matthew 24 this morning. We are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew together on these Lord's Day mornings, and we have come to this challenging and perplexing chapter, Matthew 24. I'd invite you to get a copy of the scripture if you can. There should be one um, in the chair near you. If you don't have a a Bible or a phone or a an iPad or whatever you have these days, Um, Matthew 24. You know, for 2,000 years, the nation of Israel were recipients of a vast amount of divine revelation. And yet, for all of that, they turned away again and again and again from the Lord's messengers. They hardened their hearts. They rebelled against God They maintained always an outward semblance of religion, but in their hearts they were far away from God. And Paul would later warn them in Romans chapter 2 and verse number 5, where he said, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And I just pray that, it's not, that it will not be true for any of you that that's what you're doing, that you are coming week after week and hearing the Word and maintaining an outward form of religion, but in your heart, you are far from God because as our Lord said to the people of His day, there is a cup of iniquity and it's being filled up every time we reject God's Word and that cup... The cup of God's wrath is ready to be poured out, Jesus said, in full on that terminal generation of Israelites. On them, Jesus said, would come the judgment for all of their murder of the innocent prophets and the messengers that God had sent them generation after generation. And finally, their guilt for the murder, the crucifixion of the Son of God himself. In chapter 26, excuse me, chapter 23 and verse 36, he said, all these things will come upon this generation. And in verse 38, he predicted to them, your house will be left to you desolate. That temple that should have been God's house was now nothing more than their house because God had abandoned them. God was leaving them and he would bring desolation upon that temple and upon that city and upon that people. And so in chapter 24, verse 2, Jesus predicts there will not be left here at the temple one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This was, in fact, the end of an era. It was the end of the temple, the the sign of God's presence with His people. It was the end of the nation as they knew it. For Moses had said back in Exodus 33, is it not for your going with us, Lord, that we are distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? It was the presence of God that made those people unique, not their physical lineage. And now the Lord was removing, Jesus says, His presence from His people because of their rebellion, generation after generation. And very possibly, at least in the minds of this disciples, uh, this is the, the end of the world. And so they say to him, tell us, when will these things be? And will it be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? These are the questions that our, that our Lord's disciples posed to him as he stood there on the Mount of Olives, gazing over the city of Jerusalem, after having predicted the destruction of that city and that temple, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus' response then is a lengthy one. And it runs from the beginning of chapter 24 essentially to the end of chapter 25. So this last major discourse in the book of Matthew, this fifth and final discourse is one in answer to the disciples' Questions And I think his answer has two parts. That is, he speaks with regard to two different aspects of his coming, whether the disciples understood it at the moment or not. In verses 4 to 35, he addresses the first question, when will these things be? That is, when will the destruction of the temple that Christ has just predicted, when will that take place? And then in verses 36 and following, he answers the second question, which is, what? What will be the sign of your coming? That is the Greek word parousia. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So if that's true then, then part of what Jesus says here, the beginning of chapter 24, reveals things in the near future which for us now passed as we look back. And the second part still yet lies in the future. That is verses 36 and following, which point to the, what we call the second coming of Christ or His revelation in glory. Now historically, and again, I, th- today we, we just have to try to unpack this passage and grapple with it the best we can for our understanding. And that means sometimes digging into a few details um, and last week I gave you a survey of some of the interpretations of this text, because it is a very challenging passage of Scripture um, and a challenging topic. Historically, though, most interpreters have seen in Matthew chapter 24 some mingling of references to the events of A.D. 70, the destruction of the Jerusalem temple at the culmination or in the, in the middle of the first Roman Jewish war where literally every stone was thrown down off that temple, exactly like Jesus said. Interpreters have seen fulfillments um, in in those events and also fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. Most interpreters have seen a mingling of those two things going on in this one text, in some way or another. Now there are, however, some good Orthodox people who see in Matthew chapter 24 only a reference to events that happened around A.D. 70. These are not the hyper-preterists that I warned you about last week, because they do still believe that other passages in the Scripture point to yet future events, that is, the second coming of our Lord. But they believe that Matthew 24, for its part, deals with the immediate future that Jesus is predicting. There are, on the other hand, other interpreters who see in Matthew 24 only references to the far future, that is, to the second coming of Christ in glory. And it's that interpretation that I want to um, address for a few minutes this morning. And if I'm not reading the room wrongly, I would suspect that that's where most of us have come from. heard uh, as we have listened to preaching on the text of Matthew chapter 24, um, that that it refers exclusively to things that will come in the future, that is, the future for us. Now, it is is challenging to critique other views of Matthew 24 and of eschatology in general. And it's challenging for for the first reason, because there are good Solid Bible believers on all sides. And that at least uh, causes me to feel a little bit humble in approaching this and hopefully deal with these other positions charitably. In addition, you know, it's just true that eschatology is always clearer um, as time goes by in, in hindsight. Eschatology is challenging, that is, the study of end-time things. Eschatology is challenging because it is a systemization of the theology of the entire Bible. I mean, where do you go to study eschatology? Um, Not one book or one chapter, you have to go everywhere. And it takes time to grapple thoughtfully with text after text after text through the entire canon of Scripture, so I want to grant you this morning permission to disagree with what I am, the position that I'm teaching. I I want to free your conscience a little bit, Uh, not grant you permission to dismiss it. Just because it's different from what you've always heard or what you've always thought. No, you and I are absolutely bound. I want to bind your conscience in that regard. Only the Word of God uh, can guide our thinking. Uh, not permission to disagree just because what I'm, the, the interpretation I'm presenting may not seem to make sense to you on the surface reading, but, but only if... After careful examination, you become convinced that the texts of the Scripture don't support this interpretation. So I hope that's charitable enough and gracious enough, but um, I'd like to, uh, to interact for a moment with uh, the position, uh, and I'm just going to take um, one uh, example of this position, this futurist perspective. That all of the events of Matthew 24 refer to things yet to come for us. Um, and it is a, a commentary written by an Orthodox Bible believer on the Gospel of Matthew, a man for whom uh, I have great respect and have learned much. And I might as well tell you because everybody's going to be wondering, it is John MacArthur, who sees in this text um, only references to things yet to come. And I want to hear you to hear from his perspective. What are the reasons for viewing these things as only events yet in the future? All right, so are you still with me? Okay. Um, in some ways, you know, teaching this kind of thing can seem tedious at some points, but I know also there is a part of us that generally is intrigued uh, by talk about end time events. So I hope you'll stay with me for a few moments. Um, In his commentary on Matthew, John MacArthur, as an example of someone who is a futurist, he sees seven indications from Matthew 24 that all of those events are yet in the future. I'll give them to you quickly. Number one, the fact that Jesus uses the illustration in verse 8 of labor pains, like a woman in labor. And MacArthur's argument, the futurist perspective, is that labor happens when? At the... End of a woman's pregnancy, right? The very end, then she goes into labor, just that short little time right before the birth. And so he says these events are talking about things that will happen in a short period before Christ comes again in the future. But I would ask us to think about whether that's the way that that imagery is being used in the Bible itself. And I hope we'll see some of that this morning. The second indication that he sees that all of these things are yet future is in verse 13. When the Lord says that then the end will come. You see, it's the end, right? It's the end. And MacArthur writes, "Quote The disciples obviously did not live to the end of the age. And my response is, That is obvious to whom? This is sort of begging the question, right? Isn't it? And to his credit, I'm sure he he grapples with the reasons for that later on, rather than just saying it's obvious. In fact, it's only obvious if by the end, here in verse 13, that Jesus means the end of the world, the physical destruction of the present earth. We, We obviously don't see that yet. But what does the end actually mean in verse 13? It behooves us to do a little bit of deeper thinking about that, perhaps. There is the word, the phrase, the end of the age up in verse 3. Do you see that in the disciples' question? They ask him about the end of the age. But is that the same thing he's referring to in verse 13? That's a good question. All right, number three. The futurist perspective says that verse 14, verse 14, speaks of the worldwide propagation of the gospel. And we know that hasn't happened yet, right? Because there are still lots of people in the world who haven't heard. So these things must be yet future, even for us now. But I ask you to think about whether or not that statement really envisions a day when every single individual living on planet Earth at one time hears the gospel. Or to ask this question, is that the way that this language itself is used in the Bible in other places? I'd like to examine a couple of other passages this morning. Then, number four, verse 15. Verse 15, there Jesus makes reference to this mysterious thing called the abomination of what? Desolation, that's the famous one. Everybody's heard of that. The abomination of desolation. And MacArthur makes the comment, that is yet to occur, so we know that all of these are future. And once again, this is an assertion, really more than an argument at that point um, in his discussion. Um, and it's based on an anything but certain interpretation of Daniel chapter 9, and in fact, perhaps Jesus himself can help us shed light on what is meant by Daniel in talking about the, uh, in the uh, abomination of desolation. Okay, so that's number four. Number five, are you still with me? Okay, number five, uh, why this must be in the future. And these are reasons or indications that futurists see. The fifth one is verse 21. And we'll get to these in due course, some of these. Um, Verse 21 talks about, quote, "...great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now." MacArthur writes, quote, "...the terrible events Jesus describes in this message must be the worst of all human history." And of course, you know, as bad as the events of A.D. 70 were, would we really say they're the worst in all of human history? So, the reasoning goes, these must be yet to be fulfilled events. But I want to ask you to look again at verse 21. Does the text really say this is the worst in all human history? What, in fact, is the Old Testament context of this reference here? And I think that will be enlightening to us. The fifth argument is in verse number 29 and 30. Verses 29 and 30, Jesus talks about signs like the sun and the moon being darkened and the stars falling from heaven. MacArthur writes, quote, those events obviously have not yet transpired. And somebody says, okay, Bray, how do you you interpret that one? I mean, that seems pretty obvious. The sun is still in the sky. I can look up and I can see it. Right. The moon is still there. The stars haven't fallen. So this has to be yet to come. And while many people do hold that view, I want to ask whether the Old Testament usage, the Old Testament language, helps us to think about what Jesus is referencing. I'm convinced that most of what Jesus is saying here doesn't come out of the blue. Like he's not, he's not making it up as something that these people would never have heard anything about, but rather he's drawing from a rich tapestry of Old Testament revelation and expounding on it. What are, uh, along with verses 29, notice in 29 and 30, not only does the sun and the moon and the stars fall, but look at this, also the powers of the heavens are shaken. That's the one we usually forget about. What does that mean? Is that just another reference to the sun? Um, Perhaps more. And then the, finally, number seven, this is the last one, in case you lost me. Number seven, last indication for many that these things are yet future, is, uh, and, and John MacArthur, I'll just have to read what he says, quote, this generation is the generation living during the time of those end times events. But now, which reading, I want to ask, is the most natural way to take the language, Right? If you're looking at somebody, you're preaching to them, and you say, "This generation won't pass away until these things all happen." It seems that they would take it as a reference to themselves. In fact, there is no other single illustration of the phrase being used like that, as in the futurist understanding, anywhere else in the Scripture. So, if the, this, if let me just say this. If the statements that MacArthur has highlighted seem hard for futurists to reconcile with the events of the destruction of the temple in 8070, then I would say that it seems harder for me to reconcile that Jesus' answer to their question would have absolutely nothing to do with their question. At least with the first part of their question, when will these things be? That is the things you've just talked about, the destruction of the temple, not one stone left on another. In the futurist view, Jesus' answer doesn't have anything to do with that or see that's thousands of years away from their situation. In addition, it's hard for me to reconcile the futurist understanding. Time indications, time texts regarding Jesus' coming that we have seen throughout the book of Matthew. Let me remind you of what they are. Remember these together. Let's put all of these together. You might even write them in the margin of your Bible here, perhaps. It might help. The first one is Matthew 10, verse 23. I think we've got these on the screen. Matthew 10, 23. Jesus sends the 12 disciples out to evangelize all of the jewish cities and he says to them you will not have gone through all the towns of israel before the son of man comes which sounds like it's going to be pretty what pretty soon right or chapter 20 uh, excuse me chapter 16 verse 28 jesus says to them quote there are some standing here who will not taste death until the son of man until they see the son of man Coming in his kingdom. Again, you you feel that this instinctively that this seems to be something uh, imminent here. And the last one, chapter 23, right before the passage we're looking at, after the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, after he tells them that they are just like the previous generations of their fathers who killed all of the prophets. Then he says in verse 35, on you, he says, will come all the righteous blood on earth from Abel to Zechariah. And verse 36, he says, all these things will come upon this generation. And that phrase then is repeated again in chapter 24, as we've just seen. Jesus says to them, your house will be left desolate. There will not be one stone left upon another. And then again in chapter 24, he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So throughout this gospel, not just when you get to chapter 24, but throughout at several points, it seems that Jesus is indicating that there is a nearness to some aspect of his coming. And I think that if we understand his coming in terms of the Old Testament prophecy, then it will begin to make sense for us. At least I hope it will seem to make sense for you and give you some clarity where maybe there's been um, only obscurity in the past. So I believe, for what it's worth, that Matthew chapter 24, and I think we have a, a slide for this, um, just putting it up as a, as a visual here, that Matthew chapter 24, the coming of Christ that is predicted there, that it envisions both the enthronement, the ascension and and heavenly enthronement of Jesus, and also his revelation, the unveiling that he is sitting on the throne. Because right now, his sitting on the throne is kind of obscure. There are plenty of people in the world who don't believe that Jesus rules and reigns. That his kingdom is really overall, right? But one day it will be manifest. He will appear He he will be unveiled. Everyone will see what is already taking place. And that is that Christ is enthroned. Um, So, Matthew 24 then, I believe, encompasses both the enthronement, that is His invisible reign in the present already, as the Scripture says, the kingdom is coming in ways that cannot be observed, Though there are signs of it, it's an invisible kingdom presently. And also that coming encompasses His parousia, His appearing, His his revelation, His second coming, so to speak. Um, This will be His visible reign. Uh, As the lightning flashes across the sky, it'll be clear to all that He rules and reigns in that day. His kingdom will be then fully consummated. And so, as 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Christ must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. In other words, it is an ongoing, progressive conquering of the powers of that is ongoing right now and will be fully manifest at His return. Or, as Jesus says, In Matthew chapter 26, right there in the yellow, from now on, he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see the coming of the Son of Man from now on. That is, I think it encompasses that entire spectrum. Now, the way this breaks out in in the way that the... uh, The synoptic Gospels present the coming of Christ. It seems to me that Matthew 24, the first half, deals with Christ's enthronement. And the second half, beginning in verse 36, deals with His second coming or His parousia. Mark does a similar thing. In Mark 13, the first half deals with the enthronement of Christ in heaven. The second half of Mark 13 deals with the revelation of that enthroned Christ for all to see. Luke Divides it up into different parts. In Luke 21, he deals with Christ's enthronement and all of the signs of that enthronement revolving around um, particularly the promise of the destruction of the city. And then in chapter 17, he reveals the parousia, or the second coming of our Lord. That is, I think, the best explanation of this text. I could be wrong now, but I don't think so. All right. I say that with a smile and a humble nod. All right. Just for the people who are only listening, right? Now, let's, uh, let's then examine this first paragraph this morning. And I, I feel like this is like drinking out of a fire hose. So just do your best. Hang on. Um, let's, let's look at the text again. Verse 4. Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed. for This must take place, but the end is not yet. The nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pangs. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another, and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, and the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Just that much this morning. By the time you get to verse 14, if you notice the end of this little section, Jesus says, the end will come. Right? So verse 14, the end will come, whatever that is. Okay. But verses 4 to 8 then describe conditions that do not define the end. Because if you look at the end of verse 6, Jesus says, the end is not yet. You'll see all of these things happen, but this is not the end. Right? So verse 14, he says, here's the end. But at verses 4 to 8 describe conditions that are not Signs of the end. So what kind of things do you think people might associate with fulfillment of prophecy but are not really prophetically significant? Can you imagine anything like that from your own experience growing up and, and hearing uh, people talk about you know things to come and, and signs of the times and things like that? Well, Jesus identifies three. The first is this, there will be self-proclaimed saviors, false messiahs. Verse 5, he says, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, and lead many astray. The historian Josephus wrote about many charismatic, popular Jewish leaders who gained large followings among the Jews In the first century, they presented themselves as prophets or even kings, these messianic characteristics about themselves. Men like Judas of Galilee, or a man by the name of Thudius, who actually also interestingly is mentioned in the book of Acts. He mentions an unnamed uh, Egyptian Jew who gathered 30,000 followers and tried to Enter into the temple from the Mount of Olives and set himself up as the Messiah. And the book of Acts says he actually hired 4,000 Jewish assassins to, to help him. So this is an ongoing thing in, in those days. Jesus said, These things are going to be happening. But th- that's, not, that's not a sign that the end is come. Or here's the second thing Jesus said, That might cause end times furor. Verse 6, take a look at this one. How about wars and rumors of wars? That'll stir people up. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And this period was characterized, of course, by such things. In terms of the Roman Empire, and empire-wide, the Rome entered into a war with uh, the Parthian Empire, which is kind of like where modern Iran is um, in about A.D. 36. Later on in the 60s A.D., uh, the emperor Nero, everybody's heard of Nero, committed suicide, and the whole empire was kind of uh, dragged into civil war, and there was a year there where there were four different Roman Empire emperors in quick succession. It was just constant turmoil. There were plots and there were intrigues. More locally in Palestine, there were lots of Jewish skirmishes with Roman troops leading up to the days of the beginning of the first Jewish war. There were increasing internal Jewish divisions and various sects of the Jews and the Zealots against one another as well. So there was all of this intrigue and these rumors about what was going to happen and the fear that you can feel in the air when when all of this is out there. And of course, whenever a people are entering into a time of war or there is fear of war, there is always an interest in prophecy that ticks up, right? And for the Jesus' earliest disciples, it was no different. Every generation thinks that things have never been this bad. I mean, just look. Look at the newspapers. Look at what's happening. Look at all of these events. This has got to be the end, I think we all just have bad memories. Jesus says, the end of verse 6, See that you were not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they didn't need to run for the hills yet. The third thing Jesus said, not to get all worked up about, are natural disasters. Look at verse 7. He says there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. What happens when things like that happen? Natural disasters and thunder and lightning strikes, tornadoes and hurricanes and all of it. People uh, think of them as obans, of portents, of great world catastrophe, especially if these natural phenomena come in quick succession. Even now, when there's a series of natural disasters or unusual phenomena, John Hagee will sell a whole boatload of books, right? And there were earthquakes earthquakes in Palestine, recorded in the 60s AD, and Asia Minor in AD 61, Italy in AD 62, Jerusalem in AD 67, not to mention the more local earthquakes that undoubtedly took place all over the place, like the one recorded in Acts chapter 16, verse 26, or the famines that took place, like the one widespread famine recorded in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, that took place probably around the mid 40s AD. So their period was characterized by all of these things earthquakes and natural disasters and, and all of these things. And Jesus says, you know, don't be alarmed. Verse 8, he says, are but the beginning of the birth pains. It's that phrase I want to focus on for a moment. All of these things, Jesus says, all these things I've just talked about, they are but the beginning of the birth pains. You know, the pain of labor is often used in the Old Testament as an illustration for Uh, a period of, of intense pain or suffering, especially under the judgment of God. But the New Testament really highlights the outcome of that specific kind of pain. There are all kinds of pain, right? There's the kind of pain where you drop a hammer and it lands on your toe. And there's a kind of pain when you're getting ready to give birth, and they're not the same kind of pain. One of them ends up In a better place, if God is merciful, from the pain of one comes new life, right? And this is the way the New Testament writers often use this imagery. Acts chapter 2, Peter likens Christ's suffering and death on the cross to birth pain. And he says that God brought him through that pain and brought him into new life on the other side. Resurrection life. John chapter 16, Jesus uses similar imagery when he says that he would be killed and that the disciples would sorrow, but he says your sorrow will be a sorrow like a woman in labor and the outcome of it will be that you'll be joyful, he says, because I'm going to be, you'll see me again, I will be resurrected. He, he will go through death and come out into the, the age to come, as it were, into resurrection life. But I think it's Romans chapter 8 that helps us really understand the full scope of the birth pains. Look carefully at Romans chapter 8. I think we have it on the screen. You can turn there in your scriptures. Beginning at verse number 18. Romans 8.18. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time <clears throat> are not worth comparing. With the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Right? In the present, right now, in this present evil, sinful, broken world, people suffer. Some of you have felt the sting of the sufferings of living in this present world. Then he says, verse 19 For the creation, all creation, waits. With eager longing for the what? The the revealing of the sons of God. Now that revealing is a key word that is pointing to the the coming of Christ one day. And in this case, his revealing, his unveiling will be ours too. He says we are waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. All creation is waiting for that. Because the creation was subjected to futility. The whole creation was placed under the curse, right? The ground itself was cursed by God. The creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then Paul writes this verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation but even we, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan in childbirth as it were, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for what? For adoption as sons. That The unveiling of our Sonship in glory, or to say it another way, the redemption of our what? Of our bodies. The salvation not just of our souls, but the fullness of that salvation extended even to our physical being. And just like the resurrected Christ was the first fruits of the age to come, so all of us who are in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit within us, we will be raised bodily at the consummation of the age. This then highlights the nature of our present pain. The nature of our present pain is that it's birth pain. It's not hammer-on-the-toe pain. It's birth pain. It's pain that is temporary. It's pain that lasts for a season And that in the end has an outcome, if God blesses, of incomparable joy, the joy of new life, the joy of resurrection life in the age to come. So, what that means then for us to think about eschatology is that eschatologically speaking, the birth pains are the signs of the last days and that they last from Christ's death and resurrection until His second coming and resurrection from the resurrection of His body to the resurrection of our bodies. In that period, we've finally come to the end of the ages when now the birth pains begin. And that's why Jesus could look at His disciples and say, you're only at the beginning of the birth pains right now. And he wanted them to prepare to be ready because there would be pain. There there is pain for Christians, for God's people living in this age. And there certainly would be for his disciples in the days that led up to his enthronement in glory and the the, the signs of that and the destruction of the temple. They would suffer. Look at verse 9. He says, And they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another, hate one another. False prophets will arise, lead many astray. Lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. of time between Jesus' death, which is what, A.D. 30, 33-ish, we're not certain, but right in that era, up until the destruction of the Jerusalem in A.D. 70, tradition tells us, for what it's worth, tradition tells us that most or all of the apostles were persecuted and or martyred for their testimony for Christ. The early Christians did indeed face increasing hostility from the Jews initially, and later from the Christian and the increasing false teachers, way of rising to the surface when everybody's in turmoil about the end of the world, with the increasing. many Christians were tempted to grow cold toward Christ, even to fall away from their faith in Jesus as Messiah completely. And the encouragement that our Lord gives them is to persevere. To persevere. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. What is the end? Well, the end here in verse 13 is actually a different Greek word than the one used up in verse 3 when they ask about the end of the age in the second question. That end that seems to be related to the parousia. This end is probably the end of the temple. Certainly what Jesus has been talking about. It's going to be destroyed. The end will come. It was the end of the Jewish nation as it was. It was the end of the Old Covenant. Inauguration of the Messianic Kingdom of Christ. And I think that really is what Jesus says here is really the theology and the message of the whole book of Hebrews. I was stunned by that this week. I I think this is right. I went back and read the book of Hebrews with pencil in hand, just reflecting on all of this. Think about the book of Hebrews for a moment. It was written to Jewish Christians, believers in Jesus the Messiah. And they were facing increasing persecution, the book of Hebrews makes clear. They were tempted to go back to unbelieving Judaism, to the types and the shadows which were in fact about to pass away. The end was near, the end of the old covenant system, and the message of Hebrews is to persevere in faith in Christ, and you will see the age to come. It was the destruction of the temple and the end of the sacrificial system, which would be the visible signs to them that their Savior was, in fact, ruling and reigning in heaven. In fact, that is the way the book of Hebrews starts. He wants them to know that's where Christ is, right? Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3. He says, after making purification for sins, Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the word sit down doesn't just mean that Jesus got in a nice comfortable position. It means, this is enthronement language, right? He was seated. He was placed into the seat of power. Or chapter 1 verse 13, quoting from Psalm 110, he says, sit at my, God says to the, to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a reference to the heavenly reign of Jesus Christ that we would say expands from his first coming to his second coming. Or chapter 2, verse 5, he says that there that Christ that, that everything was subjected to Christ. The, uh, the, that is, the world to come was subjected to Christ. In verse 8, he says, Now at present, we do not see, we do not yet. Okay, there's the not yet. If you want to know the not yet I've been talking about in all these prophetic discussions, here it is. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see it. It's not visible to us. Christ's rule is invisible in heaven, but we believe that's where he is. But we see with eyes of faith, we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. So all of this is is talking about the enthronement of Christ at his heavenly enthronement. It will be his victory, his victory over his enemies and the beginning of the new age. The new age in which there is a new mediator, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. A new priesthood, Hebrews chapters 5 to 7. A new covenant, Hebrews chapter 8. A new temple, Hebrews chapter 9. And a new sacrifice, Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews says to his people, listen, you haven't come to Mount Sinai of old. You've come to heaven to Mount, uh, Mount, excuse me, Mount Sinai. You haven't come to Mount Sinai of old. You've come to Mount Zion the heavenly Jerusalem. Not to the old earthly temple, but to uh, the heavenly glory of God. Not to the old earthly temple that's deserted by the glory of God, but to the presence of Christ himself. And if, the writer of Hebrews says, if you'll just persevere in your faith, you will see the fulfillment of Christ's prediction, the destruction of the temple, quote, the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made, and the dawning of a new age. And so Jesus' message in Matthew, giving them a warning of persecution, encouraging them to persevere to the end, is in fact the message of the writer of the book of Hebrews. He says, for example, in chapter 10, look at this. Just see if this is not what our Lord is saying. Beginning in verse 32, he says, recall, he writes to his readers, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured, Struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction those so treated. That's exactly what would happen, right? He says, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance, that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while... And the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in them. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And our Lord says to his hearers, those who endure to the end will be saved. And many of the disciples, I think, took Jesus' words to heart. And when the end came, And when Jerusalem was destroyed and when that temple was torn apart stone by stone, when the sacrifices were ended and the priesthood was abolished, they were, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This was a turning point in salvation history. It was the end of an era, though not yet the end of history. It was the end of the old covenant, the beginning of, Of that day that neither on Mount Zion uh, nor on Mount uh, Gerizim we would worship the Lord, but we would worship him in spirit and in truth. And in preparation for that, Jesus says now in the very end here that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles in earnest. You don't have to, the the Lord's presence is not going to be centered in Jerusalem anymore. The Lord is going to scatter about his presence everywhere his people gather, all over the globe, in all of the nations on the planet. And so Jesus says um, that the gospel would be preached. Um, Verse number 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations Shortly, of course, Jesus is going to tell them, you know this passage, Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? That stood in stark contrast to the former days when Jesus said, I was sent, chapter 15, verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Or when he told the disciples in chapter 10, verse 5, go nowhere among the Gentiles and don't enter into the towns of the Samaritans, but only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But now things are about to shift. And one sign of the end is that the Jews will reject Christ. The nation of Israel will reject him. And another sign is the inauguration of the Gentile mission. The mission to the nations. And only then, Jesus says, verse 14, the end will come. And somebody says, well, but when was the gospel preached to all of the nations? Was the gospel really preached to all of the world before AD 70? And I think some of the rest of the New Testament helps us to think about that rightly. Look at Colossians 1, verse 5. I know there's a lot of text, just we're almost done, follow. In Colossians 1, 5, Paul says, the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, right? Or Colossians 1, Paul says, the gospel that you heard has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So for, before we say, well, this this obviously hasn't happened. Let's hear the words of our brother Paul. Or as he writes in Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Quote, the revelation, he speaks of the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations. In other words, I think the point of verse 14 where Jesus says the gospel is to be preached to all. The point is not that he's saying that every single individual on planet earth needs to hear the gospel before what I'm telling you will happen happens. But rather, he's saying there will be a major pivot from the Jews who rejected me to all of the nations of the earth. The gospel will stop being a, a, a kind of come see event to a go tell event. There will be a major pivot. And this is way, the way Jesus begins to answer um, their question. When will these things be? Now, I want to close with three applications. Number one. I just want to admonish us to be careful that we don't discredit our faith by constantly looking for signs and identifying things as signs that the Bible has said to tell that Jesus is about to come. Okay, um, Wars and rumors of wars, right? <laughs> Whenever any turmoil comes upon us, We all begin to wonder, is this the end? I remember back in the 1980s. That's as far back as I can really remember. Back in the 1980s, hearing sermons about Gog and Magog. You know, that reference from Ezekiel. You know who that was? The USSR, brother. And moreover, the Antichrist was Mikhail Gorbachev. In fact, he even had the mark of the beast, right? That big old thing right on his head. I remember hearing sermons like that. Maybe you did too. Later, it was Iraq and Saddam Hussein. Or later, it was Osama bin Laden, the new Antichrist. Back in World War II, it was Adolf Hitler. Surely, this is the end of the world. We've never seen war like this, never before that it was Napoleon. Even in Jesus' day, he said, You're gonna see all things, all kinds of things like this, and the end is not yet. In fact, the very thing, the very things that Jesus said are not signs, people want to make into signs. Much less will it be for the parousia, the second coming of Christ, of which Jesus says, Of that day and hour no one knows but it becomes a kind of trope for which to make fun of Christians. You've all seen them. They're usually white guys, scruffy beards, possibly a robe, usually white, with a hand-printed white sign held up on a picket. The end is near. Right? I saw a comic... With a man like that. With his sign. And it said the end is 1985. And the 1985 was crossed out. And below that was written 1992. And that was crossed out. And below that was written 2000. You remember Y2K? 2000. And that was crossed out. And finally he just put near. <laughs> I saw a book. A, a comic of a book. that was called... The end is near, 50th anniversary edition. <laughs> I want to just admonish us not to get overly anxious about the turmoil that we experience in a broken, fallen world, but to live every day ready to meet the Savior. When he is finally revealed to be sitting on the throne that we believe him to be on. Number two, I want to admonish you to trust in the Lord and don't be fearful when scary things happen. I guess this is kind of the same thing, isn't it? Because Christ is on his throne. We believe that he is right now, presently, this very day, ruling and reigning from heaven Though his reign is to most people invisible, only to us with eyes of faith do we see him sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. But he will reign and he will continue to reign until every last enemy on earth and in heaven is made his footstool. When his foot is on the neck of the serpent and there's no more foe left standing, not even death itself. And number three, just don't grow weary, but persevere in the faith. And persevere in faith in this broken world because the pain of this age is the birth pain of the age to come. That's the nature of the pain that you experience in this world if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the hammer on the foot. It's the birth pain. It's not the judgment of Almighty God. It's the pain that will open up into the world of resurrection life. And so we say with our brother Paul, the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing. Let this pain remind you that something new is coming. Resurrection life in which there will be no more tears. Death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And even now in this world of pain, I hope you can hear God saying to you, Behold, I am making all things new. And so persevere in hope. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. May it be so. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for this testimony from your Son that may strengthen our faith, our confidence in the veracity of your word and your promises, and our vision of the Christ who is already seated at the right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And you gave him as head over all things to us, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in us all. And we bless you for our Lord Jesus. We glory in him. We pray it in his name. Amen.